Welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, on which every week I speak so slowly that you start to look into whether there are any podcast apps that play audio at four or five times the speed at which it was recorded. I know if you could somehow combine me and Ben Shapiro, you'd get someone who speaks at a normal pace, but alas... Never the twain shall meet. It is what it is. Perhaps I ought to get some of that cocaine that's apparently just lying around all over the White House. Within a few minutes, no doubt, I would sound like Alvin and the chipmunks, but it's not to be. My first sponsor today is CEI's Free the Economy podcast. Health wealth and happiness, three goals that are essential to our lives, but attaining them is often impeded by heavy-handed government controls. That's why we must free the economy. Free the Economy is a weekly podcast produced by the Competitive Enterprise Institute that documents the opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment in a world with less government control. How can smart urbanism improve our lives? Where is economic freedom under attack? How can we unleash the potential of small business owners and innovators? Each week, host Richard Morrison offers news you can use and fascinating conversations with experts in their fields to answer these questions and more. I think we can all agree that freedom is contagious. So check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org forward slash free the economy. And now, a Q&A. Question. I'm visiting London for the first time to attend one of the MLB games at London Stadium. We've really enjoyed our stay. The only things that are off-putting is the lack of AC... I do think it's been unusually hot here, so it might not be as needed mostly. Very few public bathrooms, and no ice, and or drinks aren't served ice cold. It's interesting seeing people smoking in public, but I'm old enough to remember when it was that way in the States, so it doesn't bother me. I'd be interested to know what things you miss about the UK that the States do differently, and what things you prefer in the States over the UK. End question. So I talked about some of this on a recent episode of the podcast that I did with Sam Negus from Hillsdale. That was episode 22, titled The Streets Are Made of Cheese. If you haven't heard that, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But I'll take another stab at it here as well. Obviously, the main thing that I miss about the UK is my family. I suppose that should go without saying. When you move countries, the way you interact with your parents and your siblings and your extended family, although I don't actually have much, it changes. Everything becomes a set piece. 
You can't just pop over for an afternoon or arrange a visit on the fly or go for lunch or dinner and then return home. You have to plan. You have rental cars to pick up and return and planes to catch and things to fit in before the time runs out. And the same is true the other way around. When my family visits me here, there's a schedule on the fridge. Beyond that, I do miss the dry sense of humor. English people are often very funny, and their humor is highly linguistic, which I like. I miss pubs. I miss really old places, such as Cambridge, where I grew up, or Oxford, where I went to school, or the little villages that are dotted around everywhere and that haven't changed substantively since 1600. And I miss being in the midst of a soccer culture, surrounded by other people who also care about the game. One thing I've learned moving country is that it does make a big difference to your sporting obsessions when you can share them. In America, I can share my enthusiasm for football and baseball with people who not only love those sports too, but who like the same teams as I do. In the US, it's eccentric to be a soccer fan, though. I'd be lying if I said that this hadn't caused my interest in the Premier League to diminish relative to my interest in the NFL or in Major League Baseball or in college football and so on. But beyond those things, life in America is just better. In my experience, Americans, and even the ones who have traveled widely, often fail to appreciate just how rich and easy and welcoming their country is relative to everywhere else. Now, obviously, America has problems. But life here is materially easier than life in the UK. Taxes are much lower, goods are less expensive, the standards of living are higher, there are more consumer products, innovation is ubiquitous, there's a can-do attitude, customer service is excellent. And to put it bluntly, I have a nicer life in America than I could afford in the UK. And that's unlikely to change. The Wall Street Journal had a piece this week written by Tom Fairless, that noted that that gap is growing rapidly in America's favor. Britain and Europe in general are getting poorer and America is getting richer. Now, it can be tough to measure this stuff, but when one compares the purchasing power parity of the UK to each of the 50 American states, the UK ends up either poorer than every state except Mississippi or poorer than every state, including Mississippi. Now, there are other ways to look at that, and it doesn't mean that it's necessarily better to live in Mississippi than the UK. That's a matter of taste. And I know there are some people who say that purchasing power parity isn't the only way to look at this, and they're right. But it does mean that America really is incredibly wealthy and open and full of opportunities. My friend Andrew Stutterford, who also came to the U.S. from the U.K., likes to say that America is also more fun than everywhere else, and I think he's right on that. And I would say that is especially true where I live. The weather in Florida 
is better than the weather in the UK, and there is just so much to do here. Without having to go very far, I have sandy beaches and great restaurants and lots of sporting events and a massive complement of amusement parks and golf courses and tons of movie theatres. My kids spend a huge amount of their time outside playing baseball or swimming or just running around. There are a few months of the year when the weather in the UK is nice, and when it's nice, it's nice, but most of the time it's not nice. It's grey and cold and rainy and dull. I just saw a study comparing the amount of sunshine that Americans enjoy each year compared to other first world countries, and the statistics are just extraordinary. Each year, London gets just 1,461 hours of sunshine. Now, that's bad compared to even Berlin, which gets 1,625. But once you move into the American statistics, it's paltry. Seattle, which does not have a great reputation for weather, gets 2,100 hours of sunshine per year. That's 143% of London's number. Buffalo, New York, which again doesn't have a great reputation for weather, gets 2,204 hours. Boston gets 2,638. And Jacksonville, Florida, where I live, gets 2,880 hours. That is pretty much exactly twice as much sunshine as London. And if, like me, you love the light, that has a considerable impact on your overall happiness. I cannot imagine giving that up. I've stayed away from politics in this answer, but obviously, as a conservative-leaning classical liberal, America is much closer to where I am politically than Britain is. I'm a free speech and free conscience guy. America has the First Amendment. I'm a free markets guy. America is much more capitalistic than Britain. I like separation of powers, federal systems, written constitutions. Check, check, check. And then there's the fact that I just always wanted to be in America since I was a little kid, and I can't really explain why I just did. I suspect that as more time passes, I'll become even more comfortable here than I already am. I've now lived in America for nearly half the time that I lived in England, and that changes all sorts of little calculations. When I left England, all my friends were there. Now my closest friends are here in the United States. This is where my wife and kids live. It's where my house is. It's where my job is. It's where my kids go to school. I used to come to America and see other people's lives. Now I go to England and see other people's lives. Dollars used to be a foreign currency. Now pounds are. American accents used to be unusual, although actually a lot less than you'd think, given the reach of American TV. Now, they're normal, although I obviously don't have one. Certain words and phrases and idioms used to trip me up. Now I'm fluent. In effect, we talked about this on episode 22, I learned to be a proper adult in America. I never really was an adult in England. This is a silly example of that, perhaps, but 
last year when I rebuilt my garage, I had to learn to do it. Thanks, YouTube. And so I learned to rebuild a garage in America where the voltage is different and the circuitry is different and the plumbing is different and the construction habits are different. I'm sure I could teach myself to do all that in the UK, but I didn't. And that makes the American garage familiar and the British garage unfamiliar or foreign, even though I'm from there. I don't want to overstate that case. I listen to music almost nonstop when I work. And the other day, while I was writing a magazine piece, I was listening to the soundtrack to the Christopher Nolan movie, Dunkirk. There's a moment in there when this fairly aggressive electronic music gives way to what is unmistakably the most famous motif from Nimrod, from Elgar's Enigma Variations. And not for the first time, I have no shame in admitting, I involuntarily burst into tears. I'm a fully-fledged American now, and I'm proud of it. But I was raised in the UK, and that piece of music, which has become synonymous with England, and in particular with our remembrances of the First World War, is so deeply bored into my soul that even if I wanted it to, it will never go away. That music is my grandparents' house, and the first school I went to, and my heartbreak at England going out of Euro 96 to the dastardly Germans, and my time at Oxford, and everything else from my 26 years in the UK. To listen to it on purpose is evocative enough, but to suddenly have it come at you out of the blue does somewhat remind me that whatever happens, I will always, in some important ways, be of two different places. And before we get to my guest this week, I want to tell you about ExpressVPN. The internet was supposed to be a boon for free expression, and yet what's playing out right now at the big centralized tech companies and social media sites undermines that goal and sets a dangerous precedent. It doesn't matter what your politics are or who you voted for, what you think, frankly. You should have the right to express yourself freely. And the big tech monopoly, sadly, is just not committed to that. If you want to fight back against big tech's control of the internet, one way you can do that is to use VPN, as I do. Have you ever wondered how the free-to-access tech giants make their money? Well, they make their money by tracking your searches, your video history, everything you click on, by building a profile on you and then selling off your sensitive data. But when you use the ExpressVPN app on your computer or phone, the software hides your IP address from those third parties. And that makes your activity more difficult for companies to trace and sell to advertisers. And it helps keep your online presence more anonymous. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your network data to protect you from eavesdroppers and cyber criminals. And that's why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET, Wired, Tech, Radar, and countless others. So if you want to stop allowing big tech to track you, make it more difficult for them to control your speech, 
Why not control their access to your data instead and secure your internet with the VPN that I trust for online protection? Visit expressvpn.com slash ccwc. That's expressvpn.com slash ccwc to get three extra months free with my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash ccwc. My guest today is Eli Lake, a contributing editor with Commentary Magazine and the host of a great podcast, The Re-Education with Eli Lake. Now, I've wanted to have Eli on for a while because we largely agree on the parlous state of the FBI, but in part because we agree on the parlous state of the FBI and in part because I had already had Andy McCarthy on to discuss that particular topic, I delayed the Eli Lake episode. And then I read Eli's piece in the free press called Trump Probably Broke the Law, But That Law Shouldn't Exist, which, if you haven't guessed, is about Trump's indictment under the 1917 Espionage Act. And I thought, well, we can do the podcast on that big subject instead. So here we are. Eli, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Oh, it's a real honor. I love this podcast. So thanks for having me. Thank you. So I want to talk about two main things here. The first one is whether the Espionage Act ought to exist. You say it shouldn't. And second, whether given that it does exist, Donald Trump should have been indicted under it. So let's start with the first question, the subject of that piece in the free press. You describe the Espionage Act as a train wreck of a statute, say it shouldn't exist. Why? Well, because historically, the Espionage Act has conflated in the broader law the difference between somebody like a Daniel Ellsberg, which would be whistleblowing. So somebody who would be guarding against what might be called excessive state secrecy and informing the public about something that it had a right to know. And genuine espionage, which would be the Rosenbergs, which were also convicted under the Espionage Act, which was, you know, I have no problem with um, if you give nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union in 1950, then uh, that is very bad and you know you should pay the consequences and my problem with it is that because it uses terms like defense information and that it doesn't make this sort of distinction in the broader act although the different subsections will say you know mishandling versus other sorts of things it doesn't really work as a law in my view because one activity is noble which is you know sometimes you need to inform when ellsberg eventually leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times, and he was charged under the Espionage Act. People forget that a few years before that, he had given the secret history of the Vietnam War to the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he did nothing with it. So if you're have a, if you in a moment when you might say the kind of proper channels are not working, then I don't think you should be treated under the same, you know, you should be treated as if you've committed an act of espionage, if you've effectively done some whistleblowing. So that's my main objection with the Espionage Act. 
And I should say my priors are that I think that we have far too many state secrets. And the enforcement of state secrecy in our country has been so incredibly inconsistent that it's it's kind of a joke if you think about it. Like, you know, if, if we were looking at a, a consistent enforcement regime for the Espionage Act, then every Bob Woodward book would be a crime scene. Then the New York Times most days would be a crime scene. But it's not. So we, we tolerate some leaks of sensitive, highly classified information, and nobody, nothing happens. I mean, another example of that would be the leak of Mike Flynn's conversation with the Russian ambassador in the transition between um, the uh, Obama and Trump presidencies. Nobody was even ever caught for whatever, you know, the, the leak of that information. I think it's an in, in, indicative of this broken system of enforcing or protecting state secrets. And that's why I say, let's scrap it and come up with a new way of doing it, which is to say, protect the really important stuff and have another may, way of maybe enforcing the state secrecy for things in, that are less important and make a distinction between whistleblowing and espionage. All right. So let's go through the obvious questions that that raises. So I will not argue with you that the Espionage Act is a train wreck. I mean, you didn't even mention how it was used a century ago by the Wilson administration to oh yeah shut down speech. The most famous well, example, right? I mean, that, that, that was a right. There was an original. I just we, there were there were amendments to it that included this stuff that I put in my piece about how they went after Eugene Debs, the socialist candidate. You're right. I mean, that, that, that's another and Charles part of it, Schenk. Like, so Charles Schenk is yeah. is a immigrant from Russia in the early 20th century. He is against the First World War. He writes these leaflets that he hands out. I think they were in Yiddish. And they argue that military conscription, which the United States had introduced in the second half of the First World War, is a violation of the 13th Amendment. He writes, do not submit to intimidation. Assert your rights. He says, if you do not assert and support your rights, you are helping to deny or disparage rights, which it is the solemn duty of all citizens and residents of the United States to retain. And he's prosecuted by the Wilson administration and then the Supreme Court, in one of the worst decisions in its history, Schenck v. United States, upholds this prosecution, says that it is permissible under the First Amendment. This is the case that fire in a crowded theater comes from. The idea, right. the stupid idea, Which, in my view. Which, as you pointed out before, is, is, is misunderstood by everybody who invokes the analogy. Right, because the analogy in that instance is being used to argue that arguing against your government's prosecution of a war is equivalent to falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater. This case is regarded as a disaster. It's been effectively overturned by Brandenburg, and it is one of the key cases against the Espionage Act, which, it should be said, and you just implied this, actually was worse for a while because there's these amendments to the Espionage Act in 1918, the Sedition Act, which right. make it illegal. I looked this up before I started recording. Quote, for anyone to engage in any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States or the flag of the United States, or the uniform of the Army or Navy. Now, that gets repealed in 1921, thankfully, but the rest wasn't. So I think this is a train wreck of a statute. But I want to stipulate that and move on to 
the next part, which is you've just acknowledged we need laws that make it illegal to engage in espionage or to share yes. secrets. So before we get to Trump, you said that we have to have a mechanism for whistleblowers, for people who think the system isn't working properly, to circumvent the security state. But how? Who decides that? Would the law you have in mind have a mechanism? And who would arbitrate? Well, that's a very good point. And my response to it is, it's a little bit like you know it when you see it, which is to say that when the system isn't working, I would say it wasn't working in 1970 or 1969 when Ellsberg gives the Pentagon Papers to William Fulbright and nothing happens, then that kind of creates this strain on the system. But I do think that you, you, you sort of at a certain point, because I come at this from a journalist perspective, that it should still be up to newspapers and it should be up to the journalist side of it, the fourth estate as it's sometimes known, to make the decision about what the American people have a right to know. And in that respect, I don't know that there's a necessarily a statutory fix or a process. I just think that if it comes to, you know, if you're if if you if you provide information or documentation to a newspaper and the newspaper decides or the journalist decides that it is in the interest of the United States, for the most part I would say that that's the way it should work. You know, there there are processes for whistleblower protections for Congress and so forth and we you know we're seeing it right now with the IRS whistleblowers in Congress. But for the most part, I just given the fact that leaking of classified information is ubiquitous in Washington and it's most of the time not enforced, then I guess at that point, I, I just would say we sort of already have this non, you know, we, we already have a non-process, if you will. We already, we already allow for a lot of this stuff to go out to the press. So when certain things are enforced and other things are not enforced, it invites this question, I think, of like, well, what seems, it all seems very arbitrary to me. So... How does this relate to Trump? Trump is not being prosecuted for speaking, as Eugene Debs was, or Charles Schenck was, and he's not a whistleblower. Yeah, and I say this in the piece, that he's not a whistleblower. No. So he's that. being prosecuted under the other bits, the bits that do relate to national security, the bits that relate to spying and classified information and breaking the rules that he agreed to. And more specifically, he's being prosecuted because he took, retained, possibly communicated, classified information, which puts him in the same camp as people such as Harold Martin and Terry Albrey and Daniel Hale and most recently Jack Teixeira and so on. You agree we need a law that does this in some form. Didn't Trump both violate the law and do so in a way that is not defensible on Daniel Ellsberg grounds? Well, again, let me put it like this. One of the examples that they have in that indictment is where Trump is waving around this allegedly, but I guess they don't have it, um, classified war plan for Iran to make the point that his the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, actually had his staff come up with a war plan for Iran and that he himself, that Trump himself was not the hawk, he was actually, and that it actually it was his generals who who wanted to attack Iran, which is the opposite of a story that was published in The New Yorker by Susan Glasser and later expanded on in a book by uh, Glasser and her husband, Peter Baker. And so here's my question. If it's 
if it's a violation of the Espionage Act for Trump to reference this war plan and show it to the author and publisher of a, of a new memoir by uh, Mark Meadows, well, then what about all the people who spoke to Susan Glasser about the internal deliberations at the in the final weeks of the Trump presidency? So he was responding in a weird way to another violation of the Espionage Act, which was these anonymous sources who spoke to Susan Glasser about the internal deliberations about whether or not Trump was going to bomb Iran in the final days or weeks of his presidency. Also highly classified. Or if you remember that incredible story about Mark Milley's conversations with his Chinese counterpart about, you know, be careful, like, you know, if Trump decides, uh, says something, you know, it's not necessarily means we're going to do it. And there are moments like that we've seen in American history. James Schlesinger did a similar kind of thing with Nixon and everything. So my, my point is like more about the kind of consistency of it, which is that is Trump's problem the fact that he shows the actual documents or he, he tries to retain physical documents as opposed to whispering anonymously to journalists, which is the way you're supposed to do it? And if that's the distinction, which is that it's okay to tell a Washington Post reporter about state secrets as long as you don't provide the document and as long as you're anonymous and nobody will really nothing will really happen versus like if you do it in this sort of very Trumpian way where it like looks like you're trying to get caught and I acknowledge he is, does look sometimes like he's trying to get caught then that just uh, strikes me as a bad law you know it's like well or a bad regime sort of enforcement regime of the law does that make sense to you certainly makes sense and I want to move on to Hillary Clinton at some point because there seems to be a double standard there as well but Trump did do this and he was warned about it, and he kept doing it. And you write in your piece, there's no evidence in Smith's indictment that Trump sought to keep the secret documents from his presidency to sell them to another country. That's true. Yes. But he did try to keep the secret documents from his presidency, didn't he? I mean, he was, he was warned. Was, was Susan Glass's source, was, she, was he or she warned? Okay, so, so, let me, so, so that's a very good point, Charles, because here we're running up against an egomaniac who just believed that they, the documents were his. And therefore, he was willing to violate other laws, such as he's willing to obstruct justice, so to speak, right? He's willing to lie to the FBI and his own lawyers. And that's a separate matter than the Espionage Act. And originally, when I wrote this, part of my concern was, why include all of these counts of the Espionage Act when you could just get him on lying to the FBI, so to speak, which I, I, I mean, I, you can't really defend that. They give him all the, you know, they, they, if, you, if you get a subpoena and you can't lie about it in the subpoena. So I know that sounds like a, like a fine distinction there, but that I think you have to sort of separate out. And I think you're right. Like, we don't know. I mean, I think Susan Glasser is a good journalist. She, she probably had multiple sources. But I was really trying to make a larger point, which is to say that this is such, what state secrets we decide are worth protecting and worth indicting people for always seems so arbitrary. And I don't understand in this particular case, given all of the other factors involved, such as the first time you're going to be indicting a candidate for the presidency and a former president. So you're, you're crossing a Rubicon there. And that in this particular case, is there an argument that there was great harm to national security? The FBI largely retrieved all of these documents. I don't see, like, what's the overriding point? I mean, there's a prosecutors have discretion. They don't have to bring every case that they 
find when somebody violates the law, and especially like there's got to be these other factors in it as well. So part of my argument here is just like, well, yeah, I mean, you can get him on this other stuff. Like, you know, he, he certainly obstructed justice. Lying to the FBI is no good. I'm not going to defend any of that stuff. However, did you need to bring this particular case, given the history of such inconsistencies, inconsistent enforcement of state secrecy, given the fact that you know that half the country is going to see it as illegitimate, given the fact that you might be basically setting up a sort of new cycle of politicized prosecutions and criminalizing political differences even more so, it seemed like that all of those factors would outweigh the decision to sort of prosecute. And that's, that was my main point. It's like, he didn't have to bring this case. But that can work the other way around, surely. You could say that if anyone is favored by half the country or is running for president or is a former president, then we can't prosecute them. Then we're essentially creating that, a new... No. No? No, that's not my argument. My argument isn't just because they're favored. I'm saying that's one factor. And if the crime that you're going to be prosecuting him on, which in this case is violating this law that, in my view, shouldn't exist, and you can't really show to me that that the harm to national security is such that it wasn't mitigated after the raid where you re- retrieved the documents. But, you know, like if Trump murdered somebody, then yeah, you should, that, that, that's, a, that's a kind of clear-cut example. This is an example of a all of those factors that I'm saying about him, he's, he's, he's running for president, half the country supports him, he's a former president. You better have him violating a law that everybody understands, you know, like it, it should be graft of some kind, as opposed to this bad law that is so inconsistently enforced that it invites the kinds of questions and problems that, you know, we, we're, we're discussing right now. I'm not arguing for a blanket immunity for somebody who's running for president or who has support from half the country. But if you're gonna if you're gonna indict someone like that, you should do it in a case that is that is much more of a clear cut and everybody can understand as sort of a, an important violation of the law as opposed to this. So, to what extent is this Trump's fault? You write persuasively about the Hillary Clinton case. You write, quote, Comey, by contrast, said that Clinton did not know she was violating the law by using a private email account for official government business. Now, I don't believe for a single second that Hillary wasn't guilty. I don't believe for a single second that she didn't know. And I think it's hilarious and it's outrageous that the federal government's position was effectively that Hillary wasn't reckless, but she was careless, extremely careless. Yeah, I know. But I do think that there is a difference here from a prosecutor's perspective. And that is that the government would have found it much harder to prove the case against Hillary than to prove the case against Trump because Hillary behaved like a lawyer and Trump behaved like an idiot. When you essentially say this yourself... I'm not so sure about that. If you look at all of the things that happened in the Hillary case, there are all these decisions that were made, and it's largely the Justice Department, not the FBI. There's an irony here, which is that Peter Strzok, who is now this anti-Trump media figure, but, you know, he was in charge of both the Hillary and the Trump investigations in 2016. I mean, even Peter Strzok was frustrated by the decisions of the prosecution not to take more confrontational tactics in, in, in pursuing this case. So you remember there was a tech that erased the emails that were subpoenaed. I'm sure you know all these, you know, this is the, the, the what about the 33,000 emails, all that. Well, if this was Trump and not Hillary, one would think that there would be enormous pressure that would be applied to that tech 
much like a George Papadopoulos, right, who was the uh, low-level volunteer who uh, was at the wine bar with the Australian diplomats that started off Crossfire Hurricane, and that there would that this person would be pressured and threatened with all kinds of legal trouble. Instead, he was given immunity, and then it just sort of went away. So I'm not so sure that if they had really wanted to nail Clinton, they probably could have gotten her, but they chose not to do that. And there are all kinds of examples of that. So, so again, like I, I, I probably am of the view that you shouldn't have prosecuted Clinton or Trump for these violations of, of the Espionage Act. As I, I actually wrote at the time that conservatives shouldn't be so upset about Clinton not being charged. And so I guess what you and I are sort of in a different, uh, on a different position there. But again, it also rests on this idea that Clinton, who is a highly accomplished former senator and Secretary of State and everything didn't know that having a private email where she was conducting official business as Secretary of State might be a problem in terms of mishandling classified information. That really does require kind of suspension of disbelief, don't you think? Yes. In a sense, we have the same position, which is I think both should have been prosecuted and you think neither. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. Yes. What I'm hearing you say is that this law is essentially an open-ended toolkit that can be used by the federal government to prosecute the people that it dislikes and leave alone the people that it likes. And thus, that even though we're not dealing here with the sort of facially egregious abuses that we saw under the Wilson administration, the nature of this law is the same as it ever was. Is that fair? I think that's fair. And that it's really not just the federal government. It's, it's, it's specifically the FBI and the Justice Department. And part of the thing that gets me upset about it is that the FBI leaks like a sieve. And we know that because the inspector general has actually documented it in several of recent reports where it's gone through all kinds of evidence about senior FBI agents having these long-term relationships with you know journalists and nothing ever happens to anybody who would have leaked, say, grand jury information. And we saw it during the Trump years, which is that there were all kinds of leaks of ongoing, highly sensitive investigations, which in the end didn't turn out to have yielded anything. So, you know, there was reputational damage that was done to individuals. And in the end, nothing ended up happening with it. And nobody who was responsible for those leaks were ever punished we don't even know who they were. They were never even found out. As I said, you know, one of the more egregious leaks was this conversation that Flynn had with the Russian ambassador. It turned out that the act, when we finally saw the transcript of that phone call, Flynn was doing the right thing in the sense of saying, like, you know, don't overreact as we're coming into office because when we get into a situation where it's a tit for tat. So he was he was trying to protect, I guess you could say, American interests so as to not have the uh, the Russians expelling more U.S. spies or diplomats. My point here is just that the FBI uses this its power to selectively disclose information about its investigations and prosecutions, and they never pay a price. And then they go after other parts of the government for reasons that I I mean I don't want to say it's it's not always the same. You know, like, it, it's hard to sort of say, oh, the FBI as a general sort of hive mind doesn't like individual acts. But that's, and so it makes it all seem so arbitrary, especially since, as I said, every day the newspapers, you know, will have classified information that, uh, you know, doesn't get end up in, in investigations or indictments or anything like that. 
All right, so you are given the task of rewriting the Espionage Act. You get a blank slate, Congress has agreed to repeal it, and then Eli Lake gets to write it from scratch. Wow. What's in it? I would actually start with a, a kind of commission of, of neutrals that would look at the overall system of state secrecy with a machete trying to clear off the uh, unnecessary brush. And I would start with sort of a new understanding of what absolutely has to be secret and, and what isn't secret. And I would, I, would, I would revive this process of trying to declassify information historically, something that was done, under, it was one of the few things I really liked under the Clinton administration. And I would start from there. I would, I would start with the idea that we have too many secrets and we need to get it under control. And then once we did that, then, you could, then I would maybe take, a, take the view that if you violate these particular secrets, like, you know, I don't know, agent lists, nuclear codes. I mean, we all know the list of things that are really, really important. There should be serious implications. You know, there should be serious penalties for that. But there, I, I would want to have kind of internal processes inside the government and we sort of have this stuff. I mean, there, there are offices inside the government, I forget the name of it, that, that tries to look at overclassification, but I would try to really re revitalize that and constantly have a kind of a red team or a team B that would look and say, do these things need to be secret? And then I would try to have some sort of consistency. I would want to make sure that I had somebody who watched the FBI and the Justice Department, because that isn't, I mean, we, we all know it, I'm sure, I'd be curious to kind of get your thoughts on this. I mean, don't you think it's a ridiculous that it's fairly common? Like, I mean, I thought it was absurd that Matt Gates had his reputation ruined, and I'm not a Matt Gates fan, but that it was leaked that he was, you know, being investigated for something horrible, child sex trafficking, and then we find out two years after that that they're not going to prosecute him. But still, he had to endure those two years. So I would want to have some enforcement as well against the people who are usually enforcing it. So I would want to, I would want to make an example out of people at the FBI or the Justice Department. Somebody like Andrew McCabe, who, by the way, we know dead to rights, was involved in leaking sensitive information before the 2016 election. That's according to the Inspector General report. I mean, he, he never really paid any kind of price for that. It's the former deputy FBI director. So I would want to, I mean, that's, that's, I'm more interested in that kind of thing than trying to necessarily come up with a, the perfect statute. I would want to just get rid of the Espionage Act in general because it, it doesn't even refer to classified information. It refers to national defense information, which could mean anything. I would start with that. Yeah, so when I wrote my piece saying there's a case to dismantle the FBI, two of the proposals that I included in it were mandating that the FBI is prohibited from publicly announcing it's conducting an investigation until charges are brought. And yes. if an investigation is leaked or announced in error or it finds its way out into the public bloodstream in another way, the FBI would be legally obliged to announce the closure of the case if that closure comes. And on top of that, FBI staff are legally restricted from implying publicly in any way that the subject of the closed investigation was guilty. I mean, this was one of the things that as a classical liberal, I found the most appalling about the Russiagate stuff was oh. that not only was the investigation 
not closed with prejudice, but Comey went in front of the cameras and invented this new standard. You mean, I mean Mueller? Even. Sorry, Mueller went in front yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he invented this new standard, which was, well, we didn't have enough evidence. <laughs> there was that horrible line in the Mueller report, which is just because we didn't have evidence of something doesn't mean it didn't happen or something like that. And I was like, what? No, you're tra- you, you investigate. If you have something, you, you charge it. If not, that's it. That's, a, that's the American system. I agree with you 100%. Right, right. So you would want concrete rules such as you have to have proof that somebody has shared or sold secrets with a foreign adversary. Yeah. I suppose where we're still disagreeing though is I don't know how you can have a system of secrecy. Even if you raise the the threshold for what qualifies, which I'm absolutely on board with, where you leave enough room for whistleblowers or the press to determine on the basis of their own judgment what counts and what doesn't. No, I mean, listen, you're right. It's a flaw. I don't think you're ever going to get it right, by the way. And so the question is, what, what are you willing to accept? What, 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 what would you rather have? The prospect of excessive secrecy or maybe whistle, real whistleblowers being prosecuted, right? Or occasionally have individuals who take it upon themselves to leak stuff that maybe, you know, you could say, I mean, listen, there's, there's an argument every time that you can find some reason as to why it would be, I mean, it's, it's always, let me put it, it's always a judgment call. I mean, I'm going back to the church committee of 50 years ago, and that was obviously done by Congress. So it's a different kind of thing, but that was spurred by Cy Hirsch's reporting on something known as the family jewels, which was, kind of compendium of CIA crimes over nearly 30 years that Cy Hirsch got a hold of and wrote for the New York Times. Now, that piece, which included lots of classified and, you know, super secret stuff, probably hurt American national interests. I mean, it, 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 some of it did, at least. But the overall benefit of it, which is that it, 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 it eventually led to an end to warrantless spying by the CIA, NSA, and the FBI through the Church Committee, although it was mainly about the CIA, the, the Hearst scoop, was better. So I just say, like, I don't know that you're ever going to get a perfect kind of solution where you can get everything you want. And so you're going to have to sort of accept downsides on one end of that. I would prefer that we had more openness and less secrecy, and I'm willing to accept a level of harm or risk in that direction and i understand that some people would disagree with me but that's how i look at it where are you on julian assange i am i think it's absurd that he would be prosecuted under the espionage act as he is now so i'm against that i don't think that julian assange is some sort of great hero because if you remember the original cable gate it wasn't really vetted for anything it wasn't like with Snowden, who went to journalists who then decided what they were going to publish and did some reporting and so forth. So there were things that were very harmful that came out in the cable gate, such as the names of people who were contacts of the U.S. State Department that in, in dangerous places that shouldn't have had their names revealed. So why doesn't that count? Why wouldn't you charge that under the Espionage Act? Well, first of all, he's not an American citizen. So... I guess you could charge Chelsea Manning. They did, right? They did charge him, and then, then Obama pardoned him, right? Um, right. Or commuted his sentence. I, again, I mean, I think that there was enough 
I had, that's my criticism of Julian Assange, which is that there, it was wrong to publish the names of people who were confidential sources for the U.S. government, and that was a bad thing. And there was, and it caused, you know, the U.S. government really did have to take this sort of crash program to protect some of its sources in some dangerous places as a result of that. On the other hand, that's not the whole story of what, what we learned in the Cablegate. There was a lot of information that was important to get out there. And that I think the American people did have a right to know. So in that in that particular case, I don't know if it's an either or. I mean, I I I, I but I I also don't know that uh, that I would I would I'm I don't I don't regret that we didn't get all of that information from Cablegate. I think there was a lot of good that came from it, even though it was also bad. All right, last question. Yeah. Why has there been no significant reform to the Espionage Act since 1921? And do you think that this is going to change, given that the caprice that you describe seems to go only in one direction? Hmm. I don't know that it's going to change. I, do, I don't know that right now the weaponization of the government hearings that the Republicans are going to have are going to, will have their effect because historically, when you've tried to, to kind of look at for lack of a better word, the American deep state, even though I don't think America has a deep state in the way that Turkey or Pakistan does. You need to have it be bipartisan, and that, 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 that gives it a kind of strength that you can get reform. And they don't have that now. It's a partisan exercise. And, you know, right, but, di- but Republicans, and the sort of Republicans who think I'm a terrible squish, would say, right, but that's the problem. If you expect bipartisanship here, then you are essentially saying to the Democratic Party, which in their view has weaponized these laws and created this deep state, that we, being the Republicans, aren't going to do anything about it. Right. But what, what I'm saying is that unless your position is that we don't need these institutions to tell us what our adversaries are up to and to go after arms dealers and fentanyl dealers and sex traffickers, etc., which I think we do, and I think anybody who doesn't think we need those institutions is fooling themselves and is being stupid. If you say we still need the institutions, then you need to have a kind of firmer, I mean, it's just a reality. You need to be able to have, if you want, if you want there to be reform, you can't just have it be one party. I mean, I understand the argument that the Democrats have become so wrapped up in, you you know, like this idea of resisting Trump, that they were willing to violate a lot of norms in order to do it. I agree with all of that. But there still is maybe an opportunity with some creative politicking and creative statecraft to figure out ways to form new coalitions and maybe get us beyond that. I mean, I, I would imagine that, I don't, I don't think every Democrat is lockstep behind Adam Schiff. I think Adam Schiff is a disgrace. And there's probably a lot of Democrats who probably understand that, you know, if they go back to the roots of their own party, that he represents something that's alien to their values. There is a lot of power that Congress has. And things like FISA reauthorization, they should start using some of their leverage yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, that's the other part of it. That makes sense. Tied to something What do else. you think? I mean, I love, I love listening to you. I mean, like, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm asking around these questions. But what's your view on how to get it done or how to... Well, what I don't want to see happen, although I'm reliably informed this is the only way things change, so perhaps I'm wrong, is for Republicans to come in and then start abusing the same laws. That is totally a concern of mine, yes. 
Especially when President Trump said, or when Trump himself says that he that's what he wants to do. Right. I I don't want to see abuse of our laws from either party. I do worry that without that, this will continue. And I I've had a, an internal debate at National Review with Noah Rothman, and I'm not betraying anything here. We wrote this up on the website. His view was that the standard that Comey laid out for Hillary Clinton was wrong and should therefore have been ignored in the Trump case. And I disagree. I think that although Comey got it wrong, because I think Hillary should have been prosecuted, I think once he didn't prosecute Hillary Clinton, then the indictment of Trump became a lot weaker. I think you cannot say, well, that was the standard that we came up with in one case, but we're not using it in another. The, the first time the other party is implicated to say, no, we have a different rule now. I do think, though, that the case against Trump's much stronger. I think it's much easier to prove. And I think that right. unlike Hillary, and we disagree a little on this, Trump didn't do the smart thing. And he also was essentially given an escape hatch, which he refused to take. That may have been politically smart for the primary. I don't think it will be for the general if he's the nominee. But he had a way out and he didn't take it, whereas Hillary did all manner of underhanded things, but she thought like a lawyer. And Yeah, no, no, we, we, we agree. On that, on that point, we agree. And I think you're right that you can't just have different standards this close in time to one another. It's just too much. Um, especially, I mean, I would just add one more thing. What John Durham showed, what he came up with, what he showed in his report, and I think he proved it beyond a reasonable doubt, is that there was a double standard in 2016 yes. for the FBI. And so... That double standard is is just poison for the legitimacy of our of our institutions like the FBI, and we have to we have to address that. And again, I'm not I'm open to the idea that there could be some prosecution of Trump that would be fair. I think that Trump is is largely somebody who doesn't care very much about the rule of law, so I could see him violating laws, no problem. But this is not the case to do it. I think I think we're like, might be largely in agreement on that. That this is not the case. Even though I agree with you, they have more evidence in this one than they did against Hillary in in, in terms of the intentions of like you know you can prove what 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 Trump was trying to right. do because because he said it. He was so incredibly sloppy. <laughs> he said it. Got caught saying it. He said it. Yeah, many times. Right. So. All right, Eli, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, Charles, this was great. Thank you so much. Um, I have to have you on uh, the re-education at some point, so I'd love we'll to. do another gun one. Okay, thank you very much. All right. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Eli Lake. Thank you to you for sending in your questions and then for listening. Thank you to my sponsors. CEI's Free the Economy podcast and ExpressVPN. We'll see you next week. <laughs>